you know, I'm, maybe I think I might have teased you guys and said that today we were going to actually get into the, the substance of the subject of worship. And it occurred to me, a lot of you weren't even here when we started this series. And some of you maybe went back and listened to those, but it occurred to me that we could do with a review today before we actually move away from the history portion and move into the actual constructive principles of worship. And so I'm sort of calling an audible because I think I told you last week we were going to get right into the meat of it. And instead, I want to remind us of what we've done. I want to remind you guys what we've looked at over the last few months. Um, I think we started this back in January. And now here we are, we've done 23 lessons, I think, on the subject of worship. So we've, come of, we've covered a lot of, of territory. So let me see if I can summarize 20 plus lessons down into one lesson so that we can sort of see the, the forest for the trees. Because what you've gotten was a lot of, here's what they did in the early church, here's what preaching was like then, here's the Middle Ages, here's what preaching was like then, or here's some examples of preaching. And so we've gone back and forth a little bit, and I want to sort of summarize and simplify what we've looked at. And so um, um, I think it behooves us to get refreshed on what we've covered. Now, we looked at the very beginning when we first started, we looked at worship in the Old Testament, and then we looked at worship specifically in the synagogue. And we talked about the history of the synagogue. We talked about where we believe the synagogue emerged from. If you remember, we aren't 100% sure. Um, We know when they started to appear. We know when the earliest synagogue structures that we have were built roughly. Um, But we have to infer an awful lot about the synagogue, where it came from. And one of the things we saw when we looked at the worship in the synagogues is that there is a profound similarity in the structure of the worship that took place in the synagogue and the worship that took place in the early church. Um, one of the things I tried to show was that what we do in the what they do in the early church is really similar to the structure of the synagogue. So, just for example, let me just mention a few things. The Jews had corporate confessions. They had prayers in their public services. They had the pronouncing of Aaron's blessing, the very same very same benediction I give at the end of the service. The Jews in the synagogue would have that same blessing. The the Jews would have extensive reading of the scriptures. They had sermons. They had sermons. They would open the law and the prophets. They would read the law and the prophets. And then they would explain the meaning of the text. Um, All of these are things that are very familiar to us, right? They're they're all things that we, we have in our own services. And what we saw was that when Christians began worshiping in the New Testament, right, after the resurrection of Jesus... They didn't just suddenly start worshiping in a completely unique way, starting totally from scratch. Instead, those who were Jewish often kept attending the synagogue, and they attended synagogue for decades until they were cast out by the Jews. But they also had their own unique Christian services that met on Sundays, what they called the Lord's Day, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And those Christians took what they had already been doing in the synagogues And they added to it. And they added to it in some very significant ways. One was this. In the synagogues, they worshipped Jesus. I know that sounds provocative to say that in the Jewish synagogues, they worshipped Jesus. But in the Jewish synagogues, they worshipped Jesus. But they worshipped Jesus implicitly. They they worshipped Jesus implicitly. So when they're reading the prophecies of Christ, 
right? If, if someone were to stand in the Jewish synagogues and read Isaiah 53, what are they doing? They're proclaiming Jesus to everybody in the room. They maybe don't know the name of Jesus yet, or if they know the name of Jesus, they're talking about him without knowing who he is. But when, when they were reading the law, what were they reading? They were reading types and shadows of Jesus. In the New Testament worship then, they have these services and they're still meeting and they're still singing the Psalms, which spoke of Jesus. And they're still reading the prophets, which spoke of Jesus. But the Christians also did something that the Jews didn't do. The Christians sang songs explicitly, directly speaking of Jesus. Um, they're keeping what came before, but they're not stopping at what came before. The, they went to where the types and shadows led and they worshiped Jesus directly. That's what they're doing in the early church worship. And so that distinguished them from those who were worshiping in the synagogues. But Christians would go to the synagogues even after the resurrection and they didn't see anything incompatible about going and worshiping with their brothers and sisters in the synagogue. But they also made sure to also gather a church. I think that's part of why you see the author of Hebrews has to give that reminder. Let us not be in the habit, as some are, of neglecting to gather together. And it may very well have been that there were Christians who were going to the synagogues and maybe they weren't making the Sunday gathering. And the author of Hebrews is saying we need to make sure as Christians that we're actually gathering and worshiping together. Now... Again, the Jewish, the Jewish, another change is this. The Christian worship services had something else that wouldn't have been in the synagogue. Any suggestions what that might be? Might be. There we go, sacraments. Yeah, they have sacraments in the, in the Christian services that they don't have in the synagogues, right? They're having baptisms. They're having the Lord's Supper. These are things that don't exist in the synagogues. Now, the synagogues have types and shadows of those things, right? They have circumcision. Uh, they have the, the Jewish feasts and the festivals and things like that. But all of those things are really pointing forward to the real, to the real sacrament, to the real thing Jesus is going to give. And so the Christians explicitly begin to celebrate these things in the service. And they specifically saw them as ful- fulfillments of what they knew in the synagogues as predictive signs and promises to what's coming. The big thing that I want you to see as we review all of this is that the covenant theology of the early church wasn't just an idea. It was practical. It showed up and it shaped how they worshiped. So they kept what came before and then they saw it transformed in the light of Christ. They kept what came before and they, they, and they, it, tr- it was transformed by Jesus. So the things that you see in the early church, these are not foreign to the Jewish people. These are all things that, that they would have had, except now we say, look, Jesus is the one these things were always pointing to. And it ends up shaping the whole service, right? The whole service ends up being built around Jesus fulfilling the very things they were expecting before. And so... When we move from the New Testament worship into the worship of the early church, um, we did a few things. One of the things that we did was we looked at writers in the early church. Writers, not writers, like horse riders. We looked at writers in the early church. Specifically, we looked at Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, he's living around 150 AD. 
And one of the things that Justin Martyr is doing is he's very concerned to make the case for Christianity to those in the watching world. And there's misinformation going all around the world about what Christians are doing in these services, what's actually happening here. Is it true there's human sacrifice going on? Is it true that Christians are, are cannibals? Is it true that Christians practice incest? Even among the Romans, that was disgusting. And so they have to, he's, he's explaining all of these things and saying, no, that's not us. And he gives a very thorough account, and I'm not reading, from, reading it for you because I wanted to just give you guys the summaries. But one of the things that Justin Martyr talked about was what an early Christian worship service looked like. And the thing that we saw when we were reading that was just how similar it is to what we do on Sundays. By 150 AD, Christians are already doing the very things that we've sort of described here. Very simple services centered around the word, centered around the preaching of the word. Um, Justin spends a lot of time talking about when, it's, when Christian worship takes place. He talks about the fact that Christians worshiped on Sundays. And Justin gives the reasons for it. He says that it's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, he says that it was the day when the world was first created. Um, he says that Paul required the collection to be taken up on a Sunday. And because it's the day when the church was gathered and Paul preached until midnight. So, so for Justin, he wants, he wants to give a theological argument for why they're meeting on Sunday. It's not just a convenient day. It's a theologically meaningful day. Um, I just want you to also be aware that Sunday is not a late development, right? With, within, this is within 75 years of the death of the, the Apostle John. Which again... Just not enough time for legends to develop, not enough time for new wacky traditions to develop. Justin is describing something that is so set and so normal about the Christians that he feels confident he can say it. And it's true of all Christians. We all meet on Sundays. We all have preaching. We all have singing of psalms. We all read the scriptures together. Um, we all give a benediction. We all have the sacraments, right? He's, and he doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just talking about this one local church over here. But he's really describing the widespread practice of Christians at that time. Um, he says they read the writings of the apostles, uh, that they sing songs, that they have a sermon, that they conclude the service with prayer and have the Lord's Supper together. So um, the reason I'm saying all of this and the reason I'm sort of belaboring this is that this gives us probably the clearest, aside from what you see in the New Testament, this is probably the clearest description of early Christian worship that we have, especially when you're just talking about details. Um, now, we also learned some things from non-Christian writers. One of the writers that we looked at was Pliny the Younger. Uh, Pliny the Younger did a really good job of showing us that he had done his homework on Christians before persecuting them. <laughs> so he, he wanted to make sure that he knew who they were going to be persecuting. So he's writing to Trajan. And he, he listen, Pliny writes to Trajan in, tw in 112 AD. That's 20 years after the Apostle John's death, maybe. Um, and he's writing to Trajan in 112. And he describes, without the theological precision that Justin does, pretty much what I just described to you. He says Christians meet on Sundays. Pliny says that they worshiped Christ as God. That's, by the way, a really early, uh, a very early witness to Christians worshiping Christ as God. Um, Pliny says, Pliny describes when he's writing to Trajan what sounds like the public reading of the law. 
and teaching others to keep the commandments. In other words, it sounds like he's describing reading the law and the prophets and then doing a sermon on them. Um, He mentions Christians eating food in what sounds like him trying to describe the Lord's Supper. Um, He says it's ordinary food that they pass around. Um, Pliny is a pagan. This is a guy who persecuted Christians, and that makes him a really interesting source. That makes him a really interesting source for us to listen to. Um, We also learned about early hymnody in the church. And one of the things we noted was that our own hymnal has a number of songs from the early centuries of the church. Um, We looked at the actual service and, you know, aside from standing the entire service, we talked about this, right? In the early church, all the way up until the time of the Reformation, people stood for worship. Uh, They did not have seated worship. They didn't have chairs in the buildings. Uh, They just stood around. And if you were tired, you'd stand at the edge of the room. And if you were young and robust and tough, uh, then you stood in the middle of the room during the service. And but aside from that, you would recognize the worship of the early church. If you could speak the language that they were speaking, then you would recognize it. And actually, you'd recognize a lot of the words even that they spoke, because a lot of the words we have are based in Greek and we have we have some Latin familiarity. And so when they say the name of Jesus or they say the name of the father, you would recognize the language. If we were to take a uh, a if we were to time travel back and we were able to disguise ourselves, I think we would feel at home with a lot of what they did. Um, the similarities are, are a lot greater than the differences, right? They prayed, they publicly sang, they read the scriptures, they had sermons for believers and unbelievers to hear. If you remember, we talked about the fact that they had the service split in half, and the first half of the service, here's a difference, the first half of the service, they didn't pray. They believed that only Christians should be part of the service where they pray. But they... So that's a difference, right? But they, they had a sermon that believers and unbelievers were both meant to hear. They, they intended for people because they believed that by hearing the sermon, people would be converted. By hearing the sermon, hearing uh, a passage from the Bible open and explained, people's hearts and minds and lives would be changed and they would come. And they had baptism. They had the Lord's Supper. When they had the supper, they fenced the table, which is what we do. Um, They distributed the wine. They distributed the bread. They had a benediction. Um, So I'm I'm, not to beat a dead horse, but I I, I don't have anything against horses, by the way. I don't know where that phrase came from. But not to beat a dead horse, but what I want to do is I want to help you see the New Testament worship as our worship. I want you to feel like it's familiar territory, not foreign land. Um, And I also want you to see, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this. I want you to see the medieval church as your church, too. I want you to see it as your church. But I also want you to notice that um, if you've ever belonged to a church that went weird, I don't, know how to, I don't know how else to put it. If you've ever been to a church that like one day it's normal and the next day it goes weird, maybe you feel like you belong to one of those. Um, <laughs> you feel like you went to a church and it went, went weird, then that's sort of how I want you to think of the medieval church. Um, because the medieval church is still your church, but there is some weird stuff that starts to happen. That doesn't make it not your church. And so, um, in fact, let's just do that. Let's just transition over from early church to what goes on in the Middle Ages. Um, because there, there's no smooth transition here. It's just, this is just something that starts to happen over time. Yeah. Getting back to the synagogue. Mm-hmm. Was the worship of synagogue pre-Christ mm-hmm. different than post-Christ? 
Um, the, the one thing that gets added later is a specific and intentional curse against Christians. So the synagogues basically, because there are Christians that end up sometimes coming and worshiping among them, in the synagogues by, I, mean, I, I, might have the, I might have the date wrong, but by the end of the first century, they have a curse that they publicly would read in the service. So that against Christians. But also because there was no longer a temple, there was no longer sacrifices. How did that affect the synagogue worship? That's beyond my knowledge. So I won't, I don't want to make anything up. I don't know how, I do not know how the synagogues changed in their worship after the temple got destroyed. That would be, that would be something I'm really interested in though. Um, so, yeah. So all, all intentions for, for it looks like there's a variety of options for Christians. Some of them keep their Jewish ethnic identity and they still participate in the synagogue. I'm not even sure they would let them in the synagogue if they weren't circumcised. But they, they go into the synagogues and they're living life as Jewish people who are also Christians. And the Jews at that time allowed and recognized them. So if you have somebody coming in who is also a Christian, what they probably, what they probably do is they tolerate their presence until they don't. Um, until they decide that they're a threat or a problem. That's, that's why the threat, um, that's why the curse ends up being written that is read in the synagogues to let Christians know and know on certain terms that this is not a place for you any longer. But it becomes necessary. Why? Because Christians were coming in. Uh, they were worshiping. And they were using it as an opportunity to evangelize. I mean, think of, think of uh, read the book of Acts again. And read it in light of how they approach the synagogues. And they use their time in the synagogues very effectively. right? We've got a bunch of people who believe the scriptures here. Let's show them that Christ fulfilled it. Why not do that? And so I don't know how many of them kept their heads down and stayed quiet. Uh, how many of them just simply worshipped and understood Jesus to be what they're singing about. And how many of them are using it to loudly um, proclaim Jesus but we do know that they end up being expelled from the synagogue. They can't participate any longer. All the while, though, they're also meeting on Sundays. So don't think of that as something they did instead of worshiping. Instead, they're doing both. But honestly, some of the most interesting stuff in the book of Acts deals with these exact things. And you just kind of read it with a little bit of a different eye. Like the circumcision of Timothy. A very, very interesting episode that if we were going to, wanted to dwell on something, that would be an interesting thing to dwell on. The way that Paul navigates that and the reason why he decides to do it. Um, takes us a little bit beyond this, but I think it's incredibly interesting. What happens is as the church ages, you start to pass into the 300s, the 400s, the 500s. And what we started to see, and I'm, again, I'm just reviewing what we looked at already. You have someone like Cyril of Jerusalem. He has this very complex, involved process in initiating new believers into the church. So they would spend years catechizing them, and they would have very involved ceremonies for baptism. Uh, and the baptism, like, I won't even go into it, but if you want to go back and listen to that, that lesson, which would have probably been in maybe March of this year, 
Uh, we talked about the different washings that they would go through. They would get them up early, have them face a certain direction before they're baptized. It was just incredibly involved. Um, that is all something that happens over time. And Christianity just gets more ceremonial and complex. It's all meaningful, but it becomes much more unapproachable and much harder to wrap your mind around. Why are we doing it this way? Why are, why are we anointing these people with oil? You know, and all, of, and all the time, you know, I think there were probably people who were saying, but the Bible doesn't say anything about anointing the person. It says that we're supposed to baptize the person, right? So what happens is this. Christianity becomes the state religion with the Edict of Milan. Uh, and with Theodosius II, I think, uh, it becomes the official religion of the empire. And when that happens, you have a massive influx of pagans and unbelievers into the church. Now, it's impossible. I think, I think this is fair to say. It's impossible to know how many people who came into the church were sincere believers. And ha- I mean, it's always the case, right? <laughs> Uh, we don't know who is a sincere believer. We don't know who is just doing this for the social advantages that it conveys. But you know that the church really fills up when Christianity becomes the legal religion. And, and when that happens, you have a change in the culture, right? You have a change in any church, right? When a, if, you're, if a church doubles in size, it is not going to be the same church it was when it was half that size. Like people are just different. The personalities are different. The tastes are different. And you can't help it, right? That, that change is just happening. Same thing goes for the medieval church because as these people with pagan backgrounds come into the church, you, you can't get all of it out of their systems. In some ways, they just, they just know how they're supposed to worship and they bring a lot of those habits in with them. So they have maybe Christian doctrine, but then the worship ends up having these elements of paganism in them, right? And so just as a few examples, you get the cult of the saints. It's cult of the saints, right? When people die as martyrs, they're revered. When people die as martyrs, people assume that this person must have been a great spiritual hero and they pray to them. They start to talk to them. They start to ask them to pray for them from heaven, uh, things that wouldn't have been conceivable, for example, to a Jewish person or uh, one of the apostles, I, I feel confident saying that, um, suddenly become something that's very thinkable. Um, Christians began attaching importance to the dead bodies of the saints. They start building shrines over their tombs. Um, they start asking saints in heaven to pray for them. Now, Christians did push back, right? But but it's like trying to hold back floodwaters. You just, it's very hard to do that. Um, I'll give you one example that we looked at, Jerome. Jerome says this, he says, disguised as religion, we almost see the ceremonies of the pagans being introduced into the churches. People light rows of candles in broad daylight and in all places they kiss and adore the dust of a dead body contained in a little pot and wrapped up in precious cloth. Um, that's Jerome, right? And again, we're, we're talking about the guy who translated the, the Old and New Testament into Latin, and he ended up being the, his version of the Bible ended up being the Bible they used for a thousand years. Um, we saw Cyprian of Carthage around 250 introducing this idea that Christian ministers don't just hold forth the word of truth, but they're actually priests on behalf of God. This is an innovation. Um, the, the cult of the saints is an innovation. Cyprian of Carthage and his idea of a minister as priest is an innovation. And um, 
You also see creeping in very much so time perfectly with the introduction of the pagans into the church is this this practice of idolatry that starts to take place. When you read the early church fathers, honestly, to a man, to a man, the early church fathers have a Jewish mindset when it comes to images of God. They can't conceive of it. In the temple, in the temple, what's the temple decorated with in Jerusalem? Garden themes, right? Palm branches, palm trees, um, things that would have that a Jewish that's things that would have evoked the Garden of Eden. Um, but what you don't see in the temple anywhere, not even not even on the Ark of the Covenant, is an image of God. Nowhere at all. Um, it would have been inconceivable to do something like that. And so, one of the things we saw, at least that I tried to show you when we were looking at the early church, was the uniform disgust of images that the early church fathers had. So we read from Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Epiphanius of Salamis, numerous other church fathers, all of whom were opposed to making any images of God and certainly not having them anywhere close to worship. And so what happens is instead of the synagogue mindset, new converts are brought in and they have a paganistic mindset. And You started to see this desire and this willingness to use images of Jesus and images of the saints. Wherever the previous earliest generations absolutely abominated it, suddenly it becomes tolerable. Suddenly it becomes something that people can live with. Um, One of the stories I related to you was Epiphanius of Salamis. Um, He is in a church and he sees an image of Christ sewn into um, into this banner that's hanging up in the church. And he tears it down. And then he writes a letter of apology to the bishop and says, I'm very sorry. I, I'm not sorry that I tore it down, but I'm very sorry that I destroyed your property. And so he sends a new curtain that doesn't have an image of Jesus. And he says, you should hang something that's proper up instead. Um, he calls the image of Jesus an occasion of offense unworthy alike of the church of Christ. And he begs him never to, do, to hang something like that up in his church again. And the reason was because the the Jews had very carefully been instructed never to make an image of God. And Christians understood the person of Christ was himself God. And so to make an image of Jesus was to make an image of God. And so what's the change that takes place? Is it just because the church becomes New Testament now? No, it's because of the introduction of people who are very used to having a physical image of the one they're worshiping. And that comes into the church and that becomes the norm And eventually it becomes not only accepted, but in 787 with the Second Council of Nicaea, it becomes the law of the land. Um, But until then, that's just not the case. Um, I could go on about that subject. Um, And I did go on about the subject. So, again, all you're getting here is is summaries because (laughs) go back and listen. Go back and listen. And, uh, you know, we most of these most of all of this we've talked about already. Uh, again, thousand foot view here. Um, by the time of the Reformation, one of the things we did was we talked about the many innovations that had been introduced during the early church and during the period prior to the Reformation in the, in the 1500s and the 1600s. What happens is you get an incredibly crowded church calendar, mostly centered around the cult of the saints, right? Because what are you, what's the church calendar filled with suddenly? Saints' days. As far as the eye can see, saints' days. Um, you also see um, multiplying holy days that are connected with this, right? Um, 
So you have a very full church calendar that starts to happen and the reformers start to realize this, is, this has gotten very far away from the simplicity of the Lord's day. Um, now we're just surrounded on all sides. Um, and so by the time of the Reformation, what is common? Images of the saints, images of Mary, images of Jesus. Um, then you have also on top of that, and in addition to that, the development of the mass. Instead of the Lord's Supper, you have a mass. And the mass was not just a sacrament. It was a re-sacrificing of Christ. Um, the meaning of the body and the blood in the mass go beyond just a sign and a seal. And they become understood as literal substances. Now, when we looked at the early church fathers, one of the things I, I tried to show you, you know, I had to do it briefly, but I tried to show you that the early church fathers talk about the, well, the wine and the bread as the body and blood of Jesus. Um, but they're comfortable speaking that way because Roman Catholicism has not brought in the idea of transubstantiation yet. They don't have something to react to. Um, there is an understanding that when you speak of a sign, you're, you, you use it with reference to the thing signified. So when I'm, when, I would love actually as a pastor to be able to just pick up the cup and say, this is the blood of Jesus and have nobody confused about what that means. We all understand this is a symbol. That's taking us to Christ. And yet nowadays we have to be explicit because there's such confusion that's been sown by transubstantiation. But there was a time where the church could speak freely and say, this is the blood of Jesus. Um, and yet they also use words like sign and seal to describe it. And so they don't mind using the language because they don't risk being misunderstood. It's only later that it becomes twisted into actually literally the body and the blood. Yeah. Benjamin. How would you describe mass and apply it to the when it first started? I don't think I would be very good at describing the slow development of it because I don't think it happens quickly. It happens over time, right? At first, at first, it's the body and the blood of Jesus, and then it becomes understood to literally be the body and the blood of Jesus, and then it ends up becoming understood as a sacrifice. Now, one thing I could tell you is that in the early church, people would actually bring the bread and wine during that particular part of the service. So they would actually come and they would actually bring forward as an offering wine and bread. And so one thing that may have happened over time is that not only is the Lord's Supper seen as a sacrament, but it's also seen as an offering. And, and if you have an offering and the people themselves are bringing forward an offering, what may have happened was you've got ministers and bishops who start to emphasize the offering, our participation in it. It's not hard to imagine uh, in terms of development how that suddenly becomes a, a re-sacrificing when we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years where people start to see themselves as participating in what's going on here. What do we have in front of us? The death of Jesus. We have the death of his son. And here you are, you've brought forward your, your part in it. You know, you are participating, you're contributing to the death of Jesus. And then you could imagine then how eventually that's seen as a re-sacrifice. It's a reenacting at first, and then it becomes a re-sacrificing. Um, it would be better to read some official source on that than to just get it from me. But if I had to give you my thousand foot view of how that kind of thing develops, I think that's not a, that's not a, irresponsible way of sort of summarizing it but um yeah 
J.N.D. Kelly would be a good person to read on that. He's got a book called Early Christian Doctrines, and I believe he talks about that. And he does a good job. So, yeah, J.N.D. Kelly, Early Christian Doctrines. Um, so what this does, though, is that with the introduction of the mass, seeing it as the actual physical body, the physical blood, seeing it as a re-sacrificing of Jesus means that you start to see superstitions grow up around the Lord's Supper. So it's, you're afraid of dropping a bit of it, for example. Uh, you're, you're afraid of spilling a little bit of it. So what do they start to do? They start to withhold the cup from participants. Eventually, the Lord's Supper becomes something that you don't receive, you don't participate in, you just observe. You watch the priest, the professional up there doing it. So he gets the blood, he gets the body. Everyone in the room just watches and they sort of benefit from the priest's holiness. They benefit from the priest's gain of what he gets. And it becomes very performed and observed. Um, All of that requires a response from the reformers because... There's a sickness in a church that does that sort of thing. There's a sickness in a church that would deny the cup to somebody where nobody's taking the bread, where no one's taking the wine, where everyone's just watching worship. What is this? This is sick. And the reformers recognize that, that there is a, there is a need to confront what's going on. And so here's the thing, though. To me, it is very important that we all see the church up to this point in the Reformation as still being the church of Christ. This is Jesus's church, but it's riddled with sickness. It's riddled with cancer. It's riddled with errors, but it's Jesus's church. When you look at the reformers, they don't see themselves as starting a new church. In fact, their whole argument this whole time is um, if the leadership in Rome will listen to us, we can get back to our roots and we can expunge the errors that have been accumulating. And so I want to give you a quote from someone named Philip Melanchthon. Philip Melanchthon worked with Martin Luther. They worked very closely together. They were partners in the the German Reformation. And this is Philip Melanchthon. Listen to to what he is very insistent on. He He said, I am not creating new opinions, nor do I believe that any greater crime can be committed in the church than to play games by inventing new ideas, departing from the prophetic and apostolic scripture and the true consensus of the church of God. Further, I am following and embracing the teaching of the church at Wittenberg and, whose ad- and those adherents to it. This teaching unquestionably is the consensus of the Catholic Church of Christ. He's using the lowercase c when he says Catholic there. He's not talking about the Roman Catholic. Um, he said, this is unquestionably the consensus of the Catholic Church of Christ. That is of all learned men in the Church of Christ. Um, you have this moment where John Calvin Uh, has to go back and help Geneva out because the city of Geneva is being assaulted by Rome. And they want want Sadaletto specifically, Cardinal Sadaletto, wants Geneva to come back. They say, come back to Rome. And they're desperate, so they write to Calvin and say, would you please respond? And Calvin, in his response, says this. He says, with this universal church, he uses the word Catholic, he says, with this Catholic church, we deny that we have any disagreement Nay, rather, as we revere her as our mother, so we desire to remain in her bosom. So listen to the thing. The attitude of Calvin is, we want to be part of the Catholic Church. And his problem is this. He says, he says we are more Catholic than you to Rome. That's the response that he gives. He says, we're more Catholic than you. He says, our agreement with antiquity is far closer than yours. And 
like you read Calvin and his argument is he, he just quotes the early church fathers like crazy because and he just pulls out these quotes that you're like, I can't believe that quote exists. I had no idea, you know, and if you're used to thinking of the of the early church and the ancient church as all Roman Catholic up until the Reformation, then you just it blows you away when you read Calvin. Uh, Calvin says that the Reformation was an attempt to renew that ancient form of the church. And here we're getting back to why I spent so much time talking about the early church. Calvin says all we're doing is an attempt to renew that ancient form of the church, which at first sullied and distorted by illiterate men of indifferent character, was afterward flatigiously mangled and almost destroyed by the Roman pontiff and his faction. So he's not nice. (laughs) He's not nice. And what he says to Sadaletto, but he's like, our plan is to get back to how we used to worship. Simplicity, the simplicity of scripture, the simplicity of the sacraments, the simplicity of preaching. The, the calendar is too crowded. The cult of the saints is wrong. It's not biblical. The mass is not biblical. But these are all late inventions invented by Rome. And so that's, he's got to make that case. He's got to make that case. He, he needs to show them that they're not inventing a new church. All of this means that the worship that emerges in the wake of the Reformation was a self-conscious attempt to strip away the detrius that had accumulated in the worship of the church. They're stripping back. They're pulling back. They're, they're, they're moving, removing layers of dust. They're showing everybody what the simplicity of worshiping God can really be like. This is why we look at our own worship services here at Evergreen, for example. I think when we look at our worship services, hopefully what we find is much more in common with the simplicity of what Justin Martyr described than with what we start finding in the Middle Ages. Um, I know that our, our services are very structured. Like I've, I've had people come here, and maybe you've said it to me before. If you come here from like a really contemporary church background and you come to Evergreen, maybe this church, I had somebody describe it as it feels Roman Catholic to me. Is what one person said. And I think what they meant by that was you guys read the Apostles' Creed. Um, a lot of churches don't do that. You know, Why do we read the Apostles' Creed? Because we're more Catholic than the Roman Catholic churches. Um, we keep that Catholic language on purpose. Them's fighting words when we use the word Catholic. It's there intentionally because they don't get to own it. Um, the belief of Calvin is still my belief. I think it's the session here's belief that we do Catholic worship here. We don't usually say that because it gets misunderstood. Um, but we're more Catholic than the Roman Catholics. Um, now, I did talk about the English Reformation, and I don't want to belabor what we talked about there. The reason why I wanted you to hear about, and we kind of went through it laboriously. It was not simple history, right? We were just talking about kings and switching over dynasties and all of these things. The reason we wanted to do that is because next week we're going to talk about the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship says that we should worship God according to what he has positively told us in his word. The normative principle, which is sort of the other alternative, is to say as long as God doesn't forbid it, then we're allowed to do it. Well, look, in the English church, the reformed people lived under that. They lived under the normative principle and they felt imprisoned and trapped by it because what was, what was England doing? They were coming in and they were saying, you need to add things to, the, to what the worship practices in scripture are, but it's okay because the Bible doesn't forbid it, right? The Bible doesn't forbid the people, the, the priest to wear a surplus. 
The Bible doesn't forbid us to require celibacy of of priests. Now, that's not England. That's the Roman church. Um, The Bible doesn't forbid us to require Eucharistic vestments, that you wear a specific outfit when administering the sacrament. Um, The Bible doesn't forbid us from requiring people to stand or sit in specific ways in the Lord's, when receiving the Lord's Supper. Um, The Bible doesn't forbid us from making vague what the Lord's Supper might actually be. Um, The Bible doesn't forbid us from, from imposing holy days unknown to Scripture's authors. The Bible doesn't forbid us from requiring the sign of the cross and salt when a child is baptized. Um... The requirements of certain scripture readings and prayers, uh, they say, you know, they, they, were, they were requiring all of these things. Requiring what someone should preach about during what specific season. The reason why I'm mentioning all of these things is because when we think about the Puritans, we might think of them as extremely restrictive. We might think of them as saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But what I want you to see is I want you to think of the regulative principle And I want you to think of the Puritans and what they were asking for as freedom because they're freed from being required to do certain things that God's word doesn't say. They wanted to be freed from man-made inventions. Um, They wanted to be free to worship God in the ways that they could be sure that he commanded. Um, They wanted to go back to scripture. And it was very easy to persuade a Puritan that you should do something in worship. Because all you had to do was show it in the scripture. And if you wanted them to do something else, if you wanted to add something else to it, then they would say, show me in the word. And to the Puritans, that was freedom. That was freedom because they'd lived under the sort of the policies that say, well, you have to do this also. You have to add this also. And so um, the reason I covered all of that is because if we want to appreciate what the regulative principle is, you have to feel what life was like before under the church of Rome. You had to feel what worship was like under the church of England. Um, You had to taste it. You had to get a sense of it because it turns out they were real stakes. It really wasn't just about, oh, I want to have a theological debate uh, about whether or not Christmas is a holiday, for example, right? It turns out all of these things end up being very relevant. And so What I want to do next week is I want to move from sort of this historical overview, which hopefully has been helpful, just kind of giving you the forest here, right? This is the forest instead of a bunch of trees. And what I want to do is I want to move on and actually start talking about what is the regulative principle of worship. I want to give you language to help think about worship. What's an element? What's a form? What's a circumstance? All of these things become very helpful. They end up becoming a helpful vocabulary for us to think through all of this stuff. So that being said, it's 12.15, and somehow I landed the plane at 12.15, which never really happens. So uh, now I'm, now I'm going to pray and make it not 12.15, but let's pray anyway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you've done throughout your church, throughout history. We thank you that you've not abandoned us. We thank you that, yes, Lord, you have had, uh, you've always had a church. You've always had a church that proclaimed the gospel, that declared Jesus Christ. But we also remember, oh God, that your church is occupied by sinners. And uh, your church on earth contains those who love themselves and love the flesh. And oftentimes, Lord, we have failed as a people to worship you as you say. Nonetheless, God, I pray 
that without arrogance, but with humility, we would look at your word and ask you, what is it that would please you? And I pray that that would drive us. And so I pray that we would, we would desire that, that we would want to please you in how we worship. And so uh, even in this coming week, Lord, help us to be asking that question. Help us to worship you with great anticipation and joy. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen.